0: Hi, everyone. Welcome back um, to another journal club um, hosted by the Chess Journal. Uh, My name is uh, Dr. Arvind Menon. I am an um, intensivist and pulmonologist at the Medical University of South Carolina in Charleston. Um, Today, we have a very exciting paper here uh, it's on the 5 b promoter polymorphism and survival in Indian patients with idiopathic pulmonary fibrosis. And we are very excited to have Dr. Duria, one of the authors, join us for this journal club. Um, I'd like to introduce my co-moderator as well as um, the the, uh, the primary author. Um, Dr. Gallo, do you want to introduce yourself?
1: I would love to. Hi, everybody. I am Alice Gallo. I am a pulmonary critical care physician at Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota. Excited to talk to you today about Dr. Duria's research.
0: Thank you, Alice, for joining us. Um, Dr. Duria would you be able to introduce yourself?
2: Yeah, sure. I am Dr. Sajal Duria I'm Associate Professor at the Department of Pulmonary Medicine at PGI Chandigarh, India. Uh, my uh, areas of interest in research are interstitial lung disease, sarcoidosis, and interventional
0: pulmonology. Thank you, Dr. Durya, for joining us all the way from India. Um, so I think uh, we have a lot of time, and I want to jump right in into this uh, paper. Um, let's uh, advancing my slide. Whoops, too many. So um, this is the exciting paper that we will be seeing in our journal next month. And um, so starting out, just wanted to ask you, Dr. Doria, what was the rationale for you to undertake this study and uh, what were you hoping to look at? So in fact, we started this study looking at, to answer three
2: important questions. First of all, there has been a lot of data coming in the past decade on this uh, polymorphism, the single nucleotide polymorphism in the Mucin 5 b gene. It's called RS35705950. Uh, there was no data on the, the genetics of ILD from India. So first of all, we wanted to look at uh, what is the frequency of this particular polymorphism in Indian subjects, both the control subjects, the healthy population, as well as patients with IPF. The second question was whether the mutation is associated with IPF or not in Indian subjects. And the third question, where uh, worldwide there is uh, there are, the data are few, there are only four or five studies on the association of this SNP with survival in IPF. So these were the th- three questions which we wanted to answer with this study.
0: Wonderful. Thank you. Uh, so how did you um, set up the study design, especially you know, looking at the normal population versus the ILD population and compare the differences to what is ex- um, you know, available from the Asian and Western uh, populations?
2: so when we looked at the literature we
0: found that amongst caucasians a lot of studies
2: from the caucasian population so there uh, there is a significant presence of this uh, single nucleotide polymorphism in the healthy population itself so a meta analysis shows that it is about 11% in the control population and amongst ipf patients it is about 35% so that is the data in caucasians amongst asians uh, there have been studies in the chinese the japanese and the koreans there, the frequency is much lower. So amongst the healthy population, it comes out to be a minor, uh, it comes out to be a rare because the frequency is less than 1%. It's about 0.75% amongst Asians, uh, amongst the normal uh, population. Amongst IPF subjects, it's about 2.1%. But in both Caucasians and Asians, the SNP seems to be associated with IPF. Uh, as there was there were no data from India, so we just wanted to see what is the actual frequency in our uh, population, whether it is closer to that seen in uh, Caucasians or whether it is closer to the other Eastern Asian populations, South and Southeast Asian populations. Uh, so that's why we planned the study as a, as a prospective observational study. So we have uh, an ILD clinic going on where we uh, see a variety of ILDs, is uh, one of the common ILDs that we encounter, so we were gathering clinical data of all these subjects and then prospectively we started the study and we started collecting their blood samples after due consenting procedure after ethics committee approval and then we performed a uh, sanger sequencing uh, after extracting the genomic dna from uh, peripheral blood cells and uh, and then we were as we were gathering data on the uh, the follow up of these patients over a longer term uh, so we got uh, the kind of uh, survival and anal- uh, we uh, could perform this kind of a survival analysis be- because we had data on the vital status of the subjects. So it was a prospective study, which where and we have uh, follow up data, if you take it from the symptom onset of about four and a half years, a mean of four and a half years, so that uh, we could uh, have this kind of an analysis.
1: Uh, Dr. Durya, I have a question for you. I have a question for you because um, uh, I'm fascinated. So, everyone who gets to your to your interstitial lung disease clinic uh, yeah. is asked to consent for blood draws, and you and you have a repository of all of their blood samples.
2: No, previously we did not have that, and we uh, took consent, particularly for the study, and we also okay. uh, got the consent of our. Uh, Uh, subjects for use in other genetic studies also, a general consent, apart from this particular consent for the Mucin 5B study. And later now, we have started uh, uh, another uh, kind of study as part of a network wherein we are gathering uh, uh, this uh, blood samples for biobanking, but not at the time that we initiated the study. At that time, it was uh, limited to IPF as part of the study, but also a general consent for further use for research purposes
0: only.
1: That's amazing.
0: Yeah. That's great. I, I think you know having a good uh, cohort uh, lends itself to a lot of uh, things that we can use in the future. And having like you know working having worked with cohorts, like having that data where you can go, especially if you have that um, you know the genomic data extracted and uploaded into a repository, you can always like check for associations. And you know the times that we have worked with it, and we have e- examples of this from various cohorts. Like for example, the Framingham cohort, right? The Framingham cohort started in 1950s to look at cardiovascular risk. Now You know it has been through multiple generations and uh, we have cts from it we were able to identify ila in that and then try to look at uh, what are the associations and even heritability of that as well so there is a lot of um, uh, work that can come out of this you know once it's uh, set up so uh, kudos and uh, uh, congratulations Dr. i would would like to add here that
2: it is great to have biobanks all over The world in fact and different academic centers can really build up their own and then finally those data can be combined the most important aspect of these biobanks is to have a very good clinical phenotyping of the patients as uh, good as possible because otherwise they are not uh, they will not help to that extent okay if if you have ct scans for example in flamingo obviously you had ct scans and so a lot of the the thing about ila started from there because they had uh, huge amounts of uh, radiologic data But if you want to really study the clinical outcomes, the clinical phenotyping has to be really good along with radiology.
0: Yeah, no, a lot of the times, um, you know, we have we have had a lot of CT scans, and there is, uh, you know, we do subtyping as well, and there is. uh, trying to identify, it's it, you know we try to phenotype as best as we can so that we can separate the noise from the signal. You're absolutely right. So you know once you have the right phenotype, then we can be more sure about what we are whether what we are seeing is a signal versus it's just a background noise that's because of uh, random you know variants of uh, unknown significance versus random mutations that may be somatic, not germline, all that. So wonderful point, Dr. Doria. All right. So, um, in you, you mentioned to us how you recruited your uh, con- uh, your cases. Uh, would you be able to tell how you had a control population that you're able to kind of check for uh, what was the difference in allele frequency um within the in the cases versus not cases and controls, but the 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 uh, individuals who were identified in a prospective cohort and enrolled versus the control population within the prospective cohort.
2: So the, pro- the control population came from uh, some of the staff of our hospital and some of the patient accompaniments who would agree to contribute to the study. And these were unrelated individuals uh, to the IPF patients. And so we have been in the process of building up that control cohort also over time. So that uh, initially we planned the study. Then we thought that we might be able to, in the time frame that we planned, we might be able to get about... Uh, 150 or so controls, so we planned a sample of about uh, controls being 1.5 times the number of cases, and uh, uh, so uh, that's it, and the frequency that you asked me, so the results of the study, so uh, the the frequency of this SNP amongst the control population, which was essentially people not having IPF, was about 11.8%, which is close to the figure Uh, reported in Caucasian population so in Caucasians you have about 11 or 11.2 percent so it was uh, almost the same and even amongst IPF patients the figures were very close to Caucasians so we got it in 32.1 percent of our IPF patients almost three times that of the control population and that was also close to the uh, frequency reported in a meta-analysis amongst Caucasians which is about 35 percent. So our results like our Genetics, in terms of the mucin 5P, SNP was closer to co than to other Asians. And the association was indeed found in our study, which was... With, so we found an odds ratio of 3.5 for the presence of the minor allele uh, and its association with IPF. Amongst heterozygotes who had a GT uh, genotype, there the odds ratio were 4.7, again close to reported uh, in the meta-analysis. And uh, amongst the homozygotes, we got a very few homozygotes because the pop- the sample was not a very large sample. It was just 106 patients, although it uh, had the power to report on this kind of uh, an association. But still, it was a small sample, so we just got six homozygotes overall in the IPF population and two homozygotes uh, in the in the control population. And uh, the odds ratio for homozygotes to have IPF were 8.5. Uh, yeah. So those were the frequencies very close to the patients.
0: Yeah. No. That's that's fascinating to see. The, you know, such high odds ratios associated, and we've seen that consistently with the MUC5B. You know, even when the did a meta-analysis of the G was, um, it was similar numbers uh, from what I, uh, recently published a, a couple of years ago. Um, I just uh, wanted to bring attention to Table One oh, there here. And uh, my next question is, you have like a, a good cohort here. You've been able to tell us, you know, the, what the differences are as expected, you know, uh, uh, when you were looking at cases of IPF versus controls, we know that it's a disease of um, older um, individuals, more likely in men who associated with uh, smoking. And we are seeing all that uh, same risk factors represented in the population that you have uh, studied here. Uh, one of the things that, you know, it was a little different from what I was used to seeing is the higher incidence of uh, perfenidone. And um, um, usually because uh, here, the first drug to be approved was nintendinib, and it's uh, still the uh, only drug that is approved for progressive fibrotic phenotype uh, as uh, by the FDA. We, we usually see nintendinib as the go-to. Is there any reason why you had like uh, a significantly a higher uh, number of uh, patients on perphenidone than nintedanib in your population?
2: Perphenidone uh, became available in India as a generic formulation more than a decade back. So I think it was in 2010 that it became available. Uh, generics here are cheaper, much cheaper than the innovator molecules launched by the parent company. And nintedanib uh, became available much later, and it was only the the innovator molecule available, the generics were not available. Generics became available only a couple of years back. So our choice was always, nearly always, for on because all of our patients, or maybe nearly all of our patients, uh, pay uh, for their medical expenses out of pocket. So we do not have that much uh, insurance coverage. Also, we are a, a government hospital or a public sector hospital, and we see patients from relatively a lower socioeconomic status. Mm-hmm. So they cannot, they could not really afford Nintradinib at the time we conducted the study and when Nintradinib became available as a generic formulation, really we have started uh, using uh, almost to a similar frequency as Perfenidon, but but because uh, my experience with Perfenidon is much greater than Nintradinib, so it still remains one of my first go-to options and I'm happy with the kind of uh, results that I come across with Perfenidon. Uh, but yeah, that is the particular reason that in this study we have almost eighty-five uh, percent of our patients uh, receiving profenidon rather than nifedipine.
0: That's wonderful.
1: And, and just for the curiosity of our of our listeners, how how much do you know average how much uh, your patients will pay for profenidon?
2: It would be about uh, five thousand to six thousand rupees. And uh, it is now almost equal to what they pay for and then that
1: end
2: up. The generic formulations becoming available.
1: That's wow. amazing. Here's about, and, about 15, yeah. $20,000. Yeah. yeah.
0: So yeah, and sometimes, uh, you know, depending on the copay situation, they might end up paying copay of, uh, I have patients who pay around 125 uh, out of pocket after um, if they haven't met the deductible. So, so even uh,
2: the innovative molecule of Nintedanib was about $1,000 mm-hmm. uh, per month therapy, which our patients could not really afford. Yeah, that's,
0: that, that's wonderful to hear that you were an early adopter of uh, the, the molecule after it came out. In 2009, I think FDA was still looking at a mortality endpoint, and it was only in 2014 uh, that uh, they were willing to accept um, a, a secondary endpoint of FVC. Uh, for um, approving uh, nintedanib and pirfenidone, but the earlier trials, as you mentioned, were positive um, uh, for FEC, um, uh, halting FVC decline uh, in 2009. Um, that also means uh, you probably have a lot more data um, to look at. Um, um, to you know, so we are excited to see what you're working on in the future too, to see if you can get uh, you know a long term. Um, uh, dose effect versus uh, survival effect associated with perfenodone in your population? We
2: were uh, finding in India was that a lot of physicians in practice were not prescribing the full doses. But Mm. when we started looking at ILDs, especially as a special area of interest, we started using the full dose of profanadone, which is 2,400 milligrams. So almost about 40, uh, more than 40% of our patients could tolerate the full dose. And about 25% of them could tolerate uh, 1,800 milligrams per day. So we uh, just were curious whether there is any difference in survival with a full dose or a reduced dose. So we are or the patients who did not receive any antifibrotics due to any reason. So it could be financial constraints. It could be uh, they could not tolerate the drug. That was the only drug available only drug affordable at least so we uh, made three groups one that received the full dose of perfenidone 2400 milligram the other who were receiving less than the full dose which would be anywhere from 600 milligram to 2200 milligrams and the third was no antifibrotics so because we had a good uh, cohort which we were following up longitudinally we have the data on the we had the data on the vital status of the patients so we could uh, really plot the survival with the different doses and we really found that Uh, With a 2,400 milligram dose, there was a statistically significant difference uh, between the no antifibrotic group and the perfenidone 2,400 milligram group. And uh, the reduced dose came in between. So if you see the survival curve, the three curves, so Mm. the reduced dose fell in between the full dose and the no antifibrotic group. Uh, And it didn't really achieve statistical significance with uh, the kind of sample size and the duration of follow-up we had. So it created some difference in survival, which did not meet the statistical significance uh, for the reduced dose. But with the full dose, we found a statistically
0: significant difference in the survival. Yeah,
2: oh, that's great. I got I, hope I uh, Yeah, I hope I'm clear. It was,
0: I... no, no, that that makes sense because that's a clinical problem a lot of us face. This is uh, a lot of our patients may not tolerate. Um, I have patients who come in and say that you know they're not able to take nine pills a day. Uh, that there's a pill burden, and also the the side effect profile of nausea that's uh, uh, sometimes more common with perphenadone than the diarrhea that's associated with nintedanib. Um, but that's very interesting, and so now you know I got to look at that uh, that article that you published in 2020 because it's very relevant to my practice. Um, moving on, um, you did mention uh, one of your major um, uh, uh, results um, with regards to the allele frequency, uh, Dr. Duri. Would you be able to expand on the other two um, outcomes that you studied?
2: So the uh, the first outcome was the allele frequency, as such, which I said was thirty two percent in IPF and about twelve percent in uh, control. The second question that I initially referred to was the association. So as I told the association was there with IPF Uh, for this, we also uh, tested for the Hardy-Wienberg equilibrium Mm -hmm. Uh, with the controls it conform to the equilibrium, but with the cases it did not. So that reflects that there was uh, so Hardy-Wienberg equilibrium conformity will not, may not be there due to certain reasons. For example, it might be a non-random mating it might be genotyping errors, or it might be selection bias. So those are the three important reasons why there might not be conformity for a particular mutation or SNP in a population. So uh, in the controls, there was conformity to the equilibrium that just uh, reflected that uh, uh, there might not be any selection bias on animating or genotyping errors. but. The IPF population was obviously selected because out of the normal normal general population, we selected IPF individuals. So that was a selected population. So that reflected a selection bias. That's why in our uh, cases, uh, the frequencies, the genotype frequencies did not correspond to the, conform to the hardy weinberg equilibrium. So that's how we tested for the association and uh, uh, the odds ratio I've already elaborated. We got an odds ratio of 3.5. Uh, which uh, for the minor allele, the t allele of uh, the SNP, which reflects the association with IPF. And it was close to that reported in a recent meta-analysis of about 24 studies. And it was, I think, about 4.1 or 4.2 uh, for this uh, minor allele.
0: Yeah, no, uh, that was um, the uh, Dr. Allen's uh, paper, I think, um, out, of the, um, uh, out yes. of the multiple, multiple. Um, yeah, so coming well. on to yeah, moving on to the third
2: question. So the third question we wanted to answer was whether it was related to survival. So previously we have data from two studies. One was by Dr. Schwartz's group, uh, Dr. David Schwartz uh, uh, in America, and it, that was published in uh, the Journal of American Medical Association in 2013, where they uh, found an association with survival. So the variant allele it predisposes to IPF, but Contrarily, it uh, leads to a better survival among IPF patients. So that was the finding initially reported by Dr. Schwartz's group. Then we have had a recent paper from Dr. Paolo Spagnolo's group from Italy, uh, published in 2021, who also confirmed this finding that this SNP might be associated with a better survival amongst patients with IPF. But then we had the contrary data from two other studies. One uh, was by Jiang et al., uh, data coming from China, published in 2015, where they have reported uh, a reduced survival with this uh, variant. Uh, another paper in 2016 in Respirology by uh, Vander Rees et al, where uh, there was no difference uh, for survival amongst uh, IPF patients with or without the variant allele. So there was some, uh, there is some uh, conflicting data from different studies, but the larger studies have uh, shown that it is associated with a better survival. So we sought to answer this question also. And so we uh, recorded the vital status of the patients and we uh, had a follow-up, a mean follow-up of about four and a half years uh, from the date of symptom onset. So we took symptom onset as the point where we start recording the duration uh, because uh, patients with IPF might remain undiagnosed or misdiagnosed for a long time. And if you take uh, the date of diagnosis or the date where when they present to your center, it not it might not be the right time point to start Uh, looking at the duration of survival so we took uh, the duration of survival from the point of onset of symptoms as reported by the patients which might have some biases obviously there might be some recall bias in there but we tried to do our best uh, recording that data and so uh, we had this mean duration of 4.5 years as uh, the thing and we had about uh, almost half uh, half of our patients uh, died uh, during uh, the follow-up and uh, then we plotted survival uh, with the variant allele against the wild-type allele, And we found that uh, there is a survival uh, survival benefit with the presence of the variant. So hazard ratio was 0.44. After correcting for uh, gender, person-predicted FVC, and uh, the smoking status, uh, so we got a hazard ratio 0.44, which was statistically significant, just telling us that there might be a prolonged survival with the presence of this allele amongst patients with IPS. I just
0: want to bring up can, the...
2: Yeah,
0: yeah, yeah. Yes, we can, we can yeah, go to the but figure. Could, uh, look, sorry, I think the screen went off for a second. <laughs> but yes. yes. Uh, so, uh, as you can see,
2: uh, there are two curves in uh, this graph. One is red, the other one is blue. So the red one depicts uh, the... Wild type and the blue one depicts the variant genotype, which is GT or TT. So the presence of this minor allele is there, the TLL. So if you look at the survival, uh, the y-axis shows the survival probability, which falls more sharply in the wild type group, while the survival looks better in the variant uh, cohort, uh, that is those who have the minor variant allele, the blue graph. So the blue graph uh, has a a better uh, survival probability as the time goes on. And if you look at the table, accompanying table, you can see the hazard ratio. And uh, these hazards uh, ratio, when we did the univariate analysis, uh, the female gender and and the variant uh, uh, genotype showed a better survival, while smoking was associated with a poorer survival. And when we did a multivariate, we found that the variant genotype was still associated with survival uh, after adjusting for female gender smoking and person-predicted efficacy, that is the lung function at the baseline. Yeah. So that uh, actually confirms the findings of uh, the first two papers that I mentioned by Dr. Schwartz and Dr. Paulo's uh, Paolo's Magnolo's uh, papers on uh, studying this uh, mutation and its association with survival in IPF patients.
0: Yeah, this is very interesting because, you know, there is a lot of interest in uh, why there are some of these changes that we are seeing. Like, as in why is it that, you know, in some studies you have, um, you know, uh, uh, women who survive longer with this condition. And and there are conflicting studies that say, you know, women who develop IPF actually do poorer. And uh, so it's it's an interesting area that, you know, there may be epigenetic uh, changes that may play a role. Uh, that are uh, sex specific, so it's 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 great that you have this data available as well for us to like you know look at. Um, with regards to uh, your study, you do uh, you know one of the things that you mentioned in your paper was you know the possibility that uh, these changes could be because of something called index event bias. Would you be able to expand a little bit on that? Yeah,
2: so index event bias uh, means that if a risk factor is uh, Uh, Associated with a particular disease, the presence, the mere presence of that risk factor might disallow other risk factors to creep in. So it is a little, uh, I'll elaborate on that because sometimes it may be a little difficult concept to grab. So say there are, it is actually best exemplified in the obesity paradox. So uh, patients, like clinicians across the world started uh, realizing, especially uh, intensivists, so Dr. Gallo is. An intensivist, and so she would agree that sometimes you find that some of the obese patients who come to intensive care do better than those non obese individuals. This is also especially true with heart disease. So, with heart disease, obese individuals might have uh, a better outcome if they develop a decompensated heart failure or maybe an acute coronary syndrome. They do a little better than non obese individuals. So, people were intrigued why this is happening. Obesity is a risk factor for heart disease and uh, even respiratory failure if you have a particular illness, like we saw in even in COVID that a lot of obesity was a risk factor for severe disease. So why these people were doing better than others? So that uh, was called the obesity paradox. So what obesity does is it predisposes to a disease, say heart disease, but then many of these individuals develop the heart disease at an earlier age. Right. I'll, I'll keep it simple. Let's, not, let's just think that there are only two risk factors for heart disease, age and uh, obesity. Just imagine that. So if there are two risk factors and obesity leads to heart disease, it causes the heart disease at an earlier age. So an obese individual who gets admitted to a hospital with heart failure, say at 50 years of age, and another individual who is non-obese who developed heart failure at an advanced age, say at 75 years of age. And you saw that the obese individual recovered and went home and the non-obese individual could not make it. But it might have been due to the age as a risk factor, which might act as a bigger prognostic factor than obesity. So both are risk factors for heart failure, but age becomes a greater uh, factor affecting the prognosis and the outcomes. So similarly, what uh, what it has been proposed in a lot of genetic studies and this particular case also where there are are contradictory findings. So you have IPF, um, so you have this uh, SNP, the mucin 5B polymorphism, which predisposes to IPF, but somehow contradictorily it gets associated with a better outcome amongst IPF patients. So what has been proposed is that uh, say, uh, again, we'll take an example. We'll just imagine that there are say only two risk factors for IPF, smoking and uh, the mucin 5b. There are definitely other risk factors, but for the purpose of understanding this concept, let's imagine there are only two risk factors. Then if somebody has a mucin 5b mutation, that person is predisposed to developing IPF. So even in the absence of smoking or with uh, maybe a less pack year of smoking, he or she might develop IPF, while another individual who does not have this polymorphism might require a greater number of pack years, say 40 or 50 pack years of smoking, to really develop this disease. In that case, the one who, the light smoker or the non-smoker who developed the disease, uh, might have a better prognosis because just because he was not smoking at all. And the smoker who developed the disease might have, say, emphysema, a coexistent emphysema, or other risk factors like cardiac risk factors due to the smoking, which makes the prognosis worse. Right. That is yep. a simple way to understand that uh, it just uh, the one risk factor just tends to preclude other risk factors, which may be having a greater prognostic value. Yep. So the association of mucin 5b with better survival might be a true association or it might be just an index event bias. It just precludes other risk factors and thus it uh, uh, the the risk factors which might have a greater bearing on prognosis than mucin mm-hmm. five B itself. Yeah. So I hope I was I was clear and i am clear to the audience also.
0: Yeah. And no, that that makes a lot of sense. Uh, thank you for explaining that beautifully. You they, know. they they must not they must not. It was just
2: oversimplification for the purpose of understanding. They must not go with the idea that there are only two risk factors for obesity <laughs> yeah. or two risk factors for ips
0: Of course. Uh, but
2: yeah. Uh, but if even if you. Uh, and these things might be very subtle. So, if you look at our paper, and if you look at the uh, patients who had a variant genotype and the wild type, so we took the example of smoking. Smokers mm-hmm. are not very different in our data. Uh, smokers, uh, about fifty percent smokers in the wild type, and about forty-five percent smokers in the variant genotype, and they were not statistically significant. So, it doesn't come out clearly as, as. Uh, a risk factor which is different in the two populations, but there may be subtle things, there may be multiple risk factors, which may have a subtle difference in the two populations, which may not, be, uh, which may not get caught in the statistical analysis that we perform.
0: Yeah, yeah I, I think that's a great point. And, you know, we, I think we all agree that there are a lot of unknown confounders, especially when there is, uh, you know, it's not a, a single gene that is uh, leading to this uh, particular disease. There are multiple, uh, you know, uh, risk factors, multiple genetic associations that are, um, you know, and we, we still don't know the mechanism in which how mucin 5B could be leading to uh, more fibrosis. And so uh, it's, it's a great point. Um, that that you have uh, raised it, and I think it's a it's a valid um, uh, issue to consider when we consider uh, when we look at similar studies and uh, survival. Yeah. Um, and, the, and the conflicting data on survival that we see from uh, different groups, especially the Chinese
2: data, showed that uh, the survival was actually poorer amongst uh, those who had this variant genotype. So there, the reasons might be either methodological, the way the study data were collected. It could have something to do with the sample size, so different sample size in the different studies. Third, it could really be epigenetic differences or other differences in various ethnic populations. So, the mm-hmm. Chinese I, mucin 5BSNP might be behaving differently from the Indian one and differently from those in populations. So, there may be different. I, I think we'll, we'll need a lot of uh, more studies coming from different populations to really solve this, uh, uh, this particular problem, whether the prognosis
0: is really related to the yeah and, and uh, SNP. I agree. And and I think the NIH also recognizes that and there is a more of a push to include more diverse populations into uh even the the, the registries uh, and the, the databases that we have so that we are not enriching for a particular population that might have um you know a certain phenotype um associated with the genotype but they may be Uh, behaving very differently from other populations. So just especially when we go by, you know, at the SNPs or uh, single nucleotide polymorphisms, there there is a wide array that you could just uh, get lost in um, I, I wanted to just, you know, uh, I'm very excited about your paper and I wanted to ask, you know, is there anything more that you're planning, you know, on the same line? Uh, you know, are you able to look at the FVC decline? Because that is an endpoint that we usually follow here. Um, you know, FVC decline longitudinally based on the Mach uh, 5 b You have mentioned your initial... Yeah, we, f- we, yeah,
2: yeah so we tried, we uh, just had a look at our data and uh, the problem was that uh, sometimes the, the spirometry does not get performed at very regular intervals in a, in a kind of a, just an observational study. Patients may present at different time points. Mm-hmm. So uh, you ne- really need a very good data if you, uh, and that has to be, the spirometry has to be performed well and at uh, uh, fixed intervals mm-hmm. to have a good data on that. The other thing is that some of the patients with advanced IPF are not able to really perform a good spirometry. So that, that was a challenge that we faced uh, in some of our ILD studies. and So we could not report on the FAC decline in this particular study. But yes, it is a very good point and it is very important to study because it's not only the survival which we must know because here also and in other studies, it was the all-cause mortality which was studied. It was mm-hmm. not only the respiratory related mortality. So, whether the variant is actually causing, uh, uh, actually affecting the FVC decline, or whether it is relating to survival by affecting other factors, maybe. Yeah. So, so, it will be very important to have large data on the FVC decline and on respiratory related mortality in these
0: patients. I agree. Oh, that's that's very important. And, uh, you know, we all know how spirometry is, you know, there is a certain element of variability associated with it. And, uh, you know, sometimes there are good days that the patient does well, and then there are bad days and, you know, a, a very rigorous and regimented way in which we check it at regular intervals, a proper coaching and uh, trained uh, a respiratory therapist is very important. And that's uh, been a uh, uh, challenging, but uh, you know, I think there is uh, some data coming out. Like even with home spirometry, there is uh, with the, the newer ones, we'll be able to get reliable and consistent data. So um, you know, it's something that you know we we look forward to in the field as well. Um, those are I all- hope I hope
2: home spirometry helps. Uh, yeah, that is that will be a very good thing to have. But uh, but if you look at a recent study, the perfanadon study in PFILDs, uh, where uh, one of the primary outcomes was was home spirometry. It did not really uh, work for the authors because that the primary outcome did not get finally met and finally they had to look at the laboratory spirometry which was more standardized where they really found a difference uh, with berfenidon. So uh, home spirometry has a lot of uh, uh, part to cover before it really becomes a standard of care as well as it might become a standard of clinical care but for uh, getting it as an important hard outcome in research will be more challenging because even with lab spirometry you have so much variability with home spirometry that may even be much higher
0: yeah i i agree with you i think there was some data out of canada that was saying that um, you know it would be a little bit more there were they were able to find some consistency that i, I forget exactly the paper but you know something to look into but you know i it's a, it's like i said it's a, it's a slow work in in this field and uh, we appreciate all your efforts, and we are very excited about your paper. That, those are all the questions that I have, um, um, Dr. Gallo. Any questions that you had, or anything else you wanted to discuss?
1: No, I'm I'm excited to to read everything that comes from from the Durya from the Duria, um, um database so <laughs> I'm really excited for all of, all of the things you're going to do in the future and I just want to thank you so much for being with us today I I was taking notes like how I, I, I learned a lot from everything that you that you talked to us today and I'm, I'm just very excited this is this is good for our IPF patients this is good for all our ILD patients so we we just want to thank you for being with us today
2: Thank you so much Dr Gallo And Dr. Menon, And Dr.
1: Durya, I do want to ask you, I do want to ask you, if our listeners want to find you on social media or want to contact you for research opportunities, how should they do that?
2: I'm not on Twitter. All right. (laughs) Yes, but uh, uh, my email is available with all my uh, research papers, wherever I correspond, so they can always contact me on that. And I'm mostly prompt to answer my email. So, That'll be the way. That
1: Wonderful. sounds awesome. Um, thank you so much for being with us.
0: Thank you, Dr. Dhuri. Thank you. So much.
2: Thank you. Yeah, nice talking, and uh, it was a very good discussion, and I also learned from the discussion. Thank you.
0: Great. yeah, that's that's what we are hoping to achieve. you know, everybody sharing knowledge, sharing yeah. their experience. And if not, you know, making connections. So it was great to meet you. You know, uh, you might uh, get an email from me actually in 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 a bit, uh, just asking about some more questions. Uh, and if we can if we can uh, work something out with regards to uh, you know, kind of collaborating on the data, because I also work on the genetics of um, um, ILD IPF. So it it is. Uh, it's I, I saw this paper and I was like, this paper is what we want to discuss. <laughs>
2: <laughs> That's good to hear. Yeah. So we can always uh, find in each other, a good collaborator, and maybe we can meet up somewhere, some day yeah. a conference or somewhere. So that yeah. maybe...
1: Are you coming to CHAS this year? No.
2: No, no, okay. no traveling, no international travel this year. The yeah. next year I might, And Dr. not what's your, uh, uh, like research area in particular in, intensive. I, I think we are off the recording now. Or, we, can we, be, recording? we can be can I can the the cut recording. the recording wherever
1: yeah. you want. So For please feel free. Want.
2: Yeah. All right. But
1: uh, that what do you, what did you want to say dr duran I, I
2: just wanted to ask what is the particular area that you uh, you have special interest in in intensive care
1: me so i yeah. i do a lot of liver research so acute acute on chronic liver failure um use of tag things like that and um i really like oh the novel uh cancer therapy complications so i have I have some publications in CAR T cells and the ICU um and its complications. And um I have I have a lot of research also on like checkpoint inhibitors and how they they can take people to the ICU. And I absolutely love mechanical ventilation. I love it. Um so I have also we have a um, um lung heart interaction group that we are we we have um Proof of concept paper that was published last year um, that we can titrate PEEP based on cardiac strain, and it's more sensitive. It's more sensitive um, than than some other measurements that we currently use. But um, yeah, I, I do I do a lot of, I, I do a lot of research, but I like clinical research. I yeah.
0: Wonderful.
2: Same here, mostly our research is also uh, it's clinical research, but yeah. I'm just uh, initiating myself into some laboratory work and there Dr. Menon could agree that it also offers some other kind of yeah. intellectual satisfaction, although the excitement is more with clinics and uh, maybe intensive care is really very exciting, where you can really change outcomes, but, but lab has its own uh, satisfaction to
0: offer uh, yeah. that is... And yeah, don't get me wrong I am I am a clinical researcher too I have, uh, I, yeah, have I, understand. I, I I know but as you
2: also that told me that, that you're
0: but uh, <laughs> I would not call myself a basic scientist I, yeah, I, yeah yeah you do not want just, to just getting a getting a flavor there is good
2: yeah. to have yeah. in the lab see a so, gel that <laughs> Yes even in, for this study and other studies also I have with Dr. Bal. She could not join but she is a very good collaborator always supporting me and she does the lab work with her uh, set of fellows and uh, PhDs and okay. other staff and, but i uh, But I also try to understand the concepts and uh, get the basics right and all like uh, those concepts which are very specific to lab studies and genetic studies. So I keep on reading and
0: uh, getting it, but the
2: hardcore
0: lab work is mostly done by Dr. Bal. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah, and, and yeah. Yeah. So, most of my, uh, the the learning that I've also, you know, I, it's, it's a constant learning process. Like, you know, you say you get this degree and then you do this and then you're going to practice and then the, you do research every single time. And I'm like, Wait, how did they do this analysis um, and uh, what am I looking at? So like, especially with like genetic studies, there is so much that, you know, you can do with bioinformatics and uh, learning, to, learning to code, learning to, uh, to use all the tools that are readily available. It's been, it's been quite an exciting journey. So yeah, I'm. I'm. You know, it's it's exciting to see somebody else also on that path. So that's that's great. Unfortunately, I do have to run off. So I might have to no. sign up. No. It was great meeting no. you, and thanks again, Dr. No. for joining us. It was very nice
1: Thank meeting you, Dr. Durya. Great job, Dr. Manin. Welcome. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Bye. Have a good weekend, everybody. Bye.
2: Say, Bye. pay my regards to Sahil Karna. I will. I, will, definitely definitely will. Yeah. I definitely will. I definitely
1: will.